Sequel Quest, Episode 93, A Disney Symposium of Silly Sequels. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Oh, yuck. Sequel Quest. Yes, that bit of cross-brand confusion signals to you that tonight we are delving into both sides of our podcasting endeavors as we discuss the cinematic legacy of the Walt Disney Company. But before we kick off this magical discussion, allow me to introduce your host for this Disney movie sequel special. First up, from the recently launched 12-part limited series that peeks behind the curtain of the Disneyland character department, that joyous slice of audio pie known as the Two Goofs Podcast, it's Jeff. Joyous slice of audio. Yeah, yeah, that's me. (laughs) And from the long-running, unsinkable Twinkie of podcasting known as Sequel Quest, where we discuss imaginary sequels, prequels, and reboots, I'm Adam. And joining us tonight is a man who knows his way around the Disney theme parks and multimedia empire. From the Advent Calendar House podcast and Grand Marshal of Back to the Future Day every day, it's Mike Westfall. Hey, howdy, hey, Mike. Oh, you remembered. Hello and greetings from down the road from the home of the former animation studio that brought you Mulan and is now a place where you can meet Chewbacca. Yes. So as mentioned before, Jeff and I had been putting out Sequel Quest uh, with our producer and co-host Jeremy for about three years and recently decided to start a new show where we discuss our time as costume characters at Disneyland in Anaheim from 1999 to 2005 called the Two Goofs Podcast, as we mentioned. And Mike, I don't know if you know this, but you actually have the distinction of being the first follower of the Two Goofs Podcast on Twitter. Oh, is that right? Yes. And the provider of the inaugural piece of goof mail on the show as well so thanks for your support absolutely that one i knew shout out and assist to my six-year-old daughter who was the inspiration for that now this is what i think we need to share up top is what can you tell us about your show the advent calendar house which is a title that evokes the spirit of the holidays but doesn't quite reveal the premise of that podcast well to borrow from my beloved muppet vision 3d it's a salute to all holiday specials but mostly the christmas ones (laughs) I spend every day from December 1st through Christmas Eve talking about a different TV Christmas special that I remember fondly or Hanukkah special comes in every once in a while. And then every so often throughout the year, I'll throw in something a little different. This past week, I just did an episode on the Muppets Valentine show fun. So and hopefully I'll be back around April of this year. And then I think that's it until Halloween. But. Are there April Fool's Day specials? Well, you got Easter in there. You got Passover in there. Oh, yeah, those ones. I usually do one-off specials, but I'll do TV episodes. We did one on on the Saved by the Bell Christmas episodes. I got a few coming up next year. Yeah, and it's a, it's a very well-produced, it's a very fun podcast. He always has great guests with great memories. And even specifically, you know, as I was listening back to the Once Upon a Christmas animated anthology special episode and Twice Upon a Christmas, you revealed a piece of information, a little bit of trivia I never knew. And Jeff, I'm curious to know if you knew about this, but that Goofy and Max are from a place called Cali Soda, USA? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> has, has, has this long established like since Goof Troop, or where did that come from? It must have been, or the Goofy movie, right? Well, I don't think it's ever mentioned in a Goofy movie. I think that bit of information is from the comics realm of Disney that oh, goes wow. back decades with the old Mickey Mouse ones and Uncle Scrooge and all of them. I think that's where that comes from. Because wow. Duckburg's in there. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, yeah, because I, I was just like, that's something I probably should have known when I was working at Disneyland. But nobody ever brought it up. No guests quizzed me on that. Most of us I working at Disneyland wouldn't have known that. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's at the same time deep canon and not at all canon. It's one of them. <laughs> Speaking of which, so Mike, you are a Disney super fan, to my knowledge, especially living in the land of Walt Disney World. So tell me a little bit about your history as a fan of the Walt Disney Company product. Do you, are you more a fan of the parks, the movies, the merchandise, all the above? I'm kind of an all of the above. I fake it well, really. Is <laughs> but I grew up with Disney. My earliest memories are Disney-centric. My bedroom as a baby was decorated with this giant mural painting of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and I had little pictures of Disney characters and wooden frames along the wall. First movie I remember seeing is The Jungle Book that was re-released in, I think, 1984. I have a feeling I was also in the theater for The Rescuers the year before when I was three years old, which means if that's true, then the first thing I ever saw in a movie theater was Mickey's Christmas Carol. Wow. I had the Disney Channel growing up, so I got to watch a lot of the stuff that came on there. A lot of the live action movies would show on there. Zorro was really big when I was very young. And I have been living in Florida for the last 11 and a half years. And a frequent visitor to the parks? Not as frequent as it used to be, ah. and I wish I still was, but I get my fix in a few times a year, which is better than most can say, so yeah. very thankful for that. Is there a favorite park right now? I have a soft spot for what is now known as Disney's Hollywood Studios. That's the one that started as the Disney MGM Studio. Right, which all sorts of characters have passed through there. They had Ninja Turtles. And they did. That was crazy. Aerosmith roller coaster, right? Still hanging in there. Really? That <laughs> rock and roller coaster is still there and still branded with Aerosmith. <laughs> the Muppets are hanging by a thread in the back somewhere. Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is about to open, so that place is going to be nuts very soon. Yeah, so just Disney, big part of your life. And I think it's almost ubiquitous when you think about it. I, I feel like in the world, there's the need for food and shelter and Disney. Like, if you went anywhere, somebody's seen a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. Somebody, You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. It's hard to escape the, the influence of Disney around. And Jeff, I know you've covered this on the Two Goofs podcast and even past episodes of Sequel Quest, but where do you rank yourself in terms of Disney fandom? Well, it's tough because, I mean, especially in this day and age where fandom, I mean, literally fan as fanatic. Like, you can get some people that are so far over the, the you know the spectrum of normal appreciation i suppose uh and whether it's you know tattooing your body or or believing you are actually one of these characters or uh you know just that that fanatical devotion where you've got like large chunks of things memorized like that's that's i cannot compete uh, along those lines uh, uh i even remember which i don't know I, I don't think this came up on our other podcast but i actually went with one of our friends to interview to work in attractions at disneyland a year before i actually got hired there and one of the gals that we were being interviewed with had one of those 
tear jerking like oh my mother on her deathbed said go work for disneyland and live your dream like ah uh, yeah <laughs> but as far as like an appreciator like I, I put my appreciation mostly for walt disney himself uh and then everything that he created and wanted to create is pretty high i mean like i, I definitely have a, a a reverence for for him and his dream very similar to Jim Henson with the Muppets. So. Okay. And I, I'll just say for me, if I'm being honest, it's always been more about Disney TV for me. So it's like, you know, the Disney Channel preview weekends. I didn't grow up with it. So those were super special to me and I would absorb as much as I could. That's where I got to know like most of the classic Disney cartoons, aside from a few VHS tapes I would rent from the library. You know, but when that came on, I was a huge fan of Kids Incorporated and the new Mickey Mouse Club. And then the impact of the Disney afternoon cannot be denied, which directly fed my love of Disney Adventures magazine. So kind of all of that stuff that most of the general public could consume through television, you know, on ABC and all of that as well was always a big deal. And yet I think it's interesting because... We specifically, all of us, grew up in that VHS era, right? So we started probably to have more access than people had had in decades prior, where you had to, as Mike mentioned, wait for the re-release. I remember seeing, you know, the Jungle Book re-release in theaters and 101 Dalmatians and as they would come, but it didn't seem as necessary because you could just watch them on TV. Just go back to your house and pop in the VHS and you you were good to go. Um, so that's kind of my first question is Disney was producing, obviously, from Snow White in the late 30s all the way till today both live-action and animated films and putting them out to theaters in a big way. So do you enjoy that older era of Disney as much as their current product or more so? And Mike, for you, are there some of those those Disney classics that are near and dear to you? I wouldn't say I like the, that era or any era in particular more so than the other, but there are some deep cuts that hold a special place in my heart. My favorite Disney animated movie as a kid was a really deep cut. It was The Sword and the Stone, ah, which we nice. had on VHS. So I remember watching that pretty much every weekend. Merlin, Archimedes. Oh, yeah. What? Mad yeah. Madam Mim. Mad Madam Mim. <laughs> yep. Now, Jeff, for you, when you think about that older era, I mean, that's where the iconic films that we relate to Disney began. Snow White, you look at Pinocchio, you look at all of those, and that's kind of the core of even what the Disney parks are in a lot of ways, is Fantasyland and things like that. It's based around those first 10, 15 years, it almost seems. Like, that's it's the canon of Disney, not that everything else doesn't matter, but do you have a favorite of that classic era? Well, I feel like I've got an increased appreciation of all of them. I watched one of those documentaries on Walt Disney and it was just talking about the amazing level of effort and creativity and just like outside the box thinking that went into all of those first five or six animated full-length movies and for me like my favorite I think has been Pinocchio just because the story has so resonated with me over the years but I do feel like I do have a very it's almost like when we did our Postman episode where Part of my love for The Postman is the fact that everybody else seems to hate it. Uh, and so for me, that has kind of increased my appreciation of Tron, 
where I feel like no one to this day understands Tron, which is why it's not viewed as the most brilliant movie of all time, I would say the same thing about Fantasia. Is that if you watch Fantasia for what Walt was trying to do, there has almost never been a movie like it. It's unrivaled in its brilliance. But because it was so far out there that people were like, what the heck am I? There's just blinks of light on on screen. This is just weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I put on Fantasia for my kids one night and they, they all fell asleep. It's so true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember going to see it in a re-release in the 90s. And I also was just like, why am I here? This just does not connect <laughs> to me. My dad like loves classical music and everything. So to him, it was a, a great advantage adventure to me i'm just like i guess uh hippos dancing is fun i i don't know and of course you wait for like sorcerer's apprentice if they had just put that up you know for however you know seven to eight minutes that section runs and you're okay sorcerer's apprentice everybody would have walked out of the theater happy i feel like and maybe you know if you got a giant demon you know up on top of a mountain that's also exciting but (laughs) because that's much more along the lines of what everybody else was doing but for him And even if you watch the full-length version, it starts off with a conductor explaining what's happening and saying that the awesome thing about music is it's not just supposed to be what you hear, it's supposed to be what you experience. So let us try to experience music through visuals. And so all of that, that's where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But you're right, that's such a far-out-there concept. Even by today, if they released Fantasia today, people still wouldn't get it because it's so different than what people are accustomed to. Yeah, I know for me, a really, really big one that I would watch over and over again was Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yeah. that That's one of those ones where it's just so odd and there's just so much craziness happening around you like because if you think about the other movies a lot of them are a very specific journey that one character is going on you know it's it's they're very focused and even though alice you know her journey is to try to get home she's trying to get through wonderland alive essentially like there's just so many little vignettes you know with tweedledee and tweedledum or the the carpenter and the walrus and all that you know just there's just like crazy stuff happening and it just takes your imagination away. So for me, like just the, the nonsense of it all really appealed on, on a regular basis to the point where, you know, when I got to play the Queen of Hearts later on as I, you know, started working at Disneyland, that was like an honor to me <laughs> to inhabit her. And I will get into this on a later episode of the Two Goofs podcast, but I, I really took it quite an extreme. So numerous watchings of that film was very influential. This is my other question then for you guys is, you know, there are these classics that people hold in great esteem. Is there one that you maybe feel is overhyped or never appealed to you? Mike, how about you? The closest thing I have is the Aristocats. I could never get into the Aristocats. Oh, come on. Is that a favorite? Apparently not everybody wants to be a cat. I mean, it's the music, clear. the music is so good and so that, fun. I mean, everybody Story wants to be wise. a cat is a banger, but it's true. <laughs> beyond that, it's just it it's right in that stuff. in between like it's I think that's 1970, right? Yeah. So it's that awkward thing like Walt Disney the last thing he touched was the one right before that the Jungle Book I think and then so that's where they had to kind of pick up the pieces after It always that, confused so. me to hear Baloo's voice coming out of a cat. I was just like wait. 
That that voice is too distinct. You cannot use him again. <laughs> and then they, they did. I think the next the one was Robin Hood. I know. He was, yeah, he was Little John. Little John. And he was perfect as Little John. I mean, again, I guess you, you love who you love. Jeff, how about for you? If we're going back, a hot mess is Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty, and I had forgotten because I just remember kind of like the moments in the movie that people remember. But that that was re-released while I was working at Disney. So we got a discount if you drove up to the studio. So I bought the DVD and I watched it and I was like, oh my gosh. This is like a 15-minute cartoon that they stretched out into an hour and a half. And it's just a hot mess of nothing. Like it's just – I remember as a storyteller in the park trying to tell Sleeping Beauty's story and I'm like – it's basically just Snow White with more sleeping involved. Like, it, there's n- and no dwarves. Not even interesting dwarves. You've got three slightly interesting fairies in- instead of seven interesting dwarves. Like, you're not wrong. That was actually going to be my choice as well, because Aurora, to me, is like the lesser of every princess. She, she has does- no faculty. She's yeah. Just, yeah. She's boring. It's her castle at Disneyland. I mean, I'm just like, why? Truthfully, the <laughs> other one that... It has one iconic moment and maybe one good song with We Are Siamese, but Lady and the Tramp, to me, is one of those where I'm just like, I could never get on board for that. What is this story? It's the lady gets taken, you know, she lives with this family, she meets this tramp from the streets and gets her in trouble and he fights a rat. I was reading the storybook to my daughter the other night and I still was just like, I couldn't tell you what this is about. Except for the plot points. But, like, what am I supposed to get out of this movie? I don't know. What are you supposed Some to learn? dogs happen. Yeah. <laughs> dogs Lady happen. and the Tramps one that I think I like, and I end up just, all right, that was good. But while I'm watching it, about a third of the way through, I'm feeling like, oh, we're still doing this. Uh... Exactly. It, it just it, it overstays its welcome, for sure. Yeah. Now, here's the other thing. So while they're making all these animated movies, and I think that is everybody's initial impulse, right? Is you think of Disney. What's a Disney film? Oh, it's an animated film. But the truth of the matter is they were doing television and movies in live action way more because obviously animation takes longer way more, you know, in terms of their productions that they were releasing. And especially, I mean, if you look at the fifties, like the big ones that come up is stuff like old yeller and 20,000 leagues under the sea. And you know, uh, Darby O'Gill, the little people shaggy dogs. So like they're really building steam. And in the sixties, it literally felt like a factory. Like they were just cranking them out. Same people in every movie so you're gonna have Haley mills you're gonna have you know for a little while there they they did have fred mcmurray so he's doing his absent-minded professor films and happiest millionaire and all of that you got all the kurt russell movies yeah oh, kurt yeah. russell which i i've never seen any of his disney films i've always heard oh, about really yeah I've, oh. I've never caught you unless you count guardians of the galaxy too you know <laughs> but, <laughs> but in the computer wore tennis shoes it's like i know who they are i just haven't seen them but the one who always stuck out to me, you know, so, so you have the, the shaggy dog like we talked about, but that kid, Tommy Kirk, who's in Old Yeller, he was their kid oh, yeah. for everything. Swiss Family Robinson. And to me, he was like the 60s version of Will Wheaton. I just look at him and I'm like, Will Wheaton should have been the Disney kid for the 80s and 90s. Why didn't they tap him? It's just amazing to me. And, uh, you know, like I love him in like The Monkey's Uncle with Annette Funicello. Like, so that's a fun movie. Well, the 
finding was that, like, I'm assuming that's the studio era. It was almost like baseball is now, where you would sign a contract with a studio and they would just pump out movies and you could not make a movie anywhere else. And so that's where you would get, like, Cary Grant would be pumping these movies out and Jimmy Stewart. And so I think that's one of the reasons that you do. Yeah, you see these same actors again and again and again because Disney had them under contract. Fred McMurray couldn't go anywhere else and was – you know, legally obligated. They're like, hey, we got him. Let's just keep pumping these things out. That explains a lot. <laughs> Here's Sterling Holloway, 50 ways. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, the, the one who I felt like was probably the most prolific was Dean Jones, who seemed like he was in every yeah. one of their 60s films, you know, like The Ugly Dachshund or Blackbeard's Ghost or all the Herbie movies, you know, <laughs> oh, Shaggy DA, like... Just so good. Nonstop, you know, and he he felt to me like he was like Frederick Murray's out, get Dean Jones, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> they could have been brothers. They just fit that generic white Disney guy mold. But like sometimes they they, they had an iconic role, like I was saying with Baloo, you know. You can't do that again. Like when the kids from Mary Poppins were in the Gnome Mobile, I'm like. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> did they get adopted by another family? Like, how did that all happen? You know, because they're like literally the same kids and they're just teamed up together and back at it again. I was just like, mm, I don't know if that works for me. But what was interesting then is you get into the 70s with Disney. And I feel like in general for movies, that was just like the grimiest, weirdest period of cinema. Whenever I go back to a 70s movie, I'm just like, Something is wrong. Somebody smeared, like, not even Vaseline. It's, like, literally, like, grease just, you know, all over the lead. Nothing ever looks good in the 70s, even Disney movies. And I feel like the closest I get to saying, oh, I like a movie that Disney put out in the 70s because it's, like, right on the cusp is Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Oh, to me, okay. that is a magical film, and I it literally, um, <laughs> but, but I love that. But yeah, it's kind of very Mary Poppins. They got the animation mixed with the live action and all of that, but it's just got great songs. Angela Lansbury is wonderful. You've got, you know, marching suits of armor. That's so cool. But what about for you guys? When you think of like the 70s output for Disney, is there something that stands out for you as a, a special title? Mike? I mean, I would also go with bed knobs and broomsticks on that. Mm -hmm. As far as the animation goes in the 70s, there wasn't a lot, but I could tell that even that was dirtier. You look at Robin yeah. Hood and you look at the rescuers and it seems not quite as fine-tuned as the other things before that, and especially not after that. But. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, like, the animated films, again, of, like, the 40s, it was amazing, like, the painted backgrounds, and just, I mean, that's yeah. the one thing they always talk about with Sleeping Beauty, right? It's like, oh, you can't believe the matte painting work. I don't know if it counts as matte painting in animation, but you know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, Sleeping Beauty is a beautiful movie, but it's a beautiful mess. Yeah. How about for you, Jeff? Are you an Apple Dumpling Gang fan? <laughs> I never, yeah, I felt like I was supposed to be, honestly, but I never really got into those. It was the same thing with, what was the one, uh, Escape from Witch Mountain? Right. It sounded so amazing. And when I would see clips of it, I'm like, what is this movie? I need to see it. And I, I still don't think I've ever actually seen it all the way through. And the parts that I would watch, it was just kind of like, what's happening? I'm either confused or it's going too slow or... I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I saw all those Herbie movies. They lost quite a bit as they went on. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, if you look back, like there's so few titles from the seventies era that stand out. Although when I, you know, reached out on our social media, the one film that kept coming up and even in like private messages are like, yeah, it'd be great. And somebody suggested it for sequel quest itself. Could you do a sequel to the black hole? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I have never seen the black hole. I, I have heard of the not. black hole. Yeah. It's, it's like, where do you find it? <laughs> it's, it's well, cause it was definitely in that everybody loves star Wars. So everybody's got to make star Wars now. And that's what I heard. It was just like a boring star Wars. That's always the review I've heard of the black hole. Right. <laughs> but that's the, that's the yeah appeal to see more or whatever. So when we get to the eighties, then I think that's where, again, you were kind of in a space of, okay, well, their output for animation, which is falling, falling, falling. If you've ever seen, what's that uh, documentary? Is it Waking Sleeping Beauty? I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. Where they basically talk about that 80s era where it's just like, oh, it was rough. And how they're trying to bring it back. Well, and that was right after a big walkout in, I think, 1978, where Don Bluth left and a whole bunch of people followed him out. I don't know if it was much a walkout. I've always heard that it was much more of a cleaning house that's how the disney eras were kind of defined is that they would kind of just fire everybody and move on into a new era and that, that was sounds about right is that other thing that i've always heard and i've never actually read enough about it to know the kind of the sordid details but the darkest it got with disney was shortly after american tale was released by don bluth because mm-hmm. then everybody was saying oh my gosh like this guy does disney better than disney does disney And right at that time, financially, they weren't doing great. And there was actually an offer from a Japanese company to buy the Walt Disney Company. And leadership was kind of up in the air. They weren't sure who was going to be taking the reins. Shouldn't have taken the chance on Euro Disney. (laughs) There was a part of that. My children need a wine. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's true, though, because like 80s era Disney animation was I remember Oliver and company towards the end of the decade. They really were like banking on that. You know, McDonald's was really hitting us hard. We had like, you know, ornaments and stuffed animals. And why should I worry is a good tune. But the rest of the movie, I remember just being like, "Eh." my wife loves Oliver and company. And I could never get quite to the same level as she could. (laughs) Mm hmm. But I remember all of that. They were promoting that. And you can see hints of it starting to, you know, climb out of that hole. Yeah, because before we get into the Disney Renaissance, which, you know, I think that's where almost everybody's mind goes to immediately. Oh, you think of Disney nowadays. But like during the 80s, I really enjoyed what Disney was doing in live action. I felt like they took a lot of chances and made some interesting productions. One that I know Jeff is particularly familiar with, Condor Man with Michael Crawford. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe not the high point, but then Tron, right? (laughs) So a year later, they released Tron, and that was, again... Maybe from a storytelling standpoint, and you can go back to the archives, listen to our Tron Legacy sequel episode. No, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you get it like Jeff gets it. Jeff gets it, you do not. Um, (laughs) But then also, one of my personal favorites, Return to Oz. Yes. That is a special movie. And so, like, the fact that they were able to give us, you know, something along those lines. And even Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You know, that was 89. And I feel like that's a major high point. And not so much for me, but I know a lot of people hold Flight of the Navigator 
in great esteem. I was going to say, don't don't skip Flight of the Navigator. Yeah, that's one I didn't watch a whole lot, but I know that it's a pretty it's pretty special to a lot of people. I was a big fan of Pee Wee Herman and Pee Wee's Playhouse growing up, so Flight of the Navigator was one that I went back to and I was like, hey! <laughs> and obviously the impetus for him being our friendly pilot in Star Tours, the original Star Tours. Yes! Good old Rex. But it was, I mean, like, I remember, like, Flight of the Navigator, I feel like it was maybe Wayne's World for the 80s, where it was everybody <laughs> would quote that thing constantly, everybody saw it, everybody loved it, like, it was everywhere. And not necessarily because of advertisement, like, I don't remember all of the promotion, but it, it just resonated. I still remember that music video, and they're like, what is it, music in the future is twisted, sister, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, and just like, I think... I think it was just that ending of the E.T. era and you wanted something like E.T. And there yeah. it was again, you know, so but also like on TV, because again, they're in I believe it was 86. They launched the Disney Channel. And so like, that's a big deal. They had to pump out a lot of content for Disney Channel for Sunday movies on ABC because now they got their TV network. So you're getting stuff like Mr. Boogity. My wife loves one called Rock and Roll Mom. I don't know that one. You don't. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> but. I loved where the toys come from. That That's a favorite VHS of mine I have in front of me right now. And I don't know if you, are you guys familiar with that particular little adventure? I'm drawing a blank. I'm about to look. Yeah, it's blank. basically, it's like Toy Story, but in live action with real wind up toys. It is basically like these toys want to know. They talk to their little girl who owns them and she's like, where did you come from? And they're like, I don't know. And she says, I'll put you back in your package and that'll be your time travel device. And they go to Japan to the factories for Tomy, the Tomy toy company. Oh, wow. And they go through this whole like situation of you see the assembly line. It's it's just a fascinating little movie and uh, I've always loved it. So that was the one. Would be. And then Jeff, do you know about your boy uh, Scott Bakula? In a, a movie called I Man. Have you ever heard of I? With the letter I, not I, eyes in your head. What, why is he my guy, Scott Bakula? Well, you love your quantum leap. <laughs> Doesn't everyone? <laughs> you weren't an Enterprise guy, Jeff? No. Okay. Was anybody an Enterprise guy? See, look, we're on both ends oh. with Scott Bakula. Was it everybody? Was anybody? All right. <laughs> but I Man was this story where it, uh, the I stood for indestructible. And basically, he's a guy who stops to help somebody with a car that's broken down. And it's actually like a government vehicle where they stole this gas. And it, he breathes in the gas. It like explodes on him. And now he can heal really fast. So he's basically Wolverine. So like, can't die. So he saves the day by putting himself in harm's way. And it was kind of a bad premise. But you know, again. this actually sounds like something I may have seen and completely forgotten about until yeah. now. I think it had the kid from Flight of the Navigator. Hmm. So, yeah, it was interesting. But, yeah, that could have been a great team up. You know, you got Condor Man and I-Man. There you go. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so let's get into this then because then we have the Renaissance, right? And yes. what's interesting is they have the Little Mermaid, right, is what kicks that off. That was big. But then they jumped, like, from that to the next year kind of a, a step back in my mind which is the rescuers down under because yeah. the rescuers well, again is yeah. a lesser franchise to try and build well because but my other thought is though because then the year before 88 was when who framed roger rabbit came out 
So I kind of wonder oh, yeah. if how much that kind of... But that's Touchstone, you know, it's like in a different area. Like, it doesn't really... Because they've all but disowned him, you know. We've talked about that in our Roger Rabbit episode. Again, go back, listen to our ideas for a Roger Rabbit sequel. But, like, it just felt like they never really embraced Roger as heavily as they could have, despite giving him a ride in Toontown. Because I, I would agree, that's a huge step forward in advancement. And even Rescuers Down Under was the first mixing of computer animation and hand-drawn animation. But it was just like, again, it was just like, characters did we care about them? Not so much. So of the Renaissance era, for you guys, what is the film you think either holds up the best or is just the one that you stand by and say, yes, this is Disney at its finest? I mean, my personal favorite of that era is Aladdin. I cannot deny the power of The Little Mermaid. Every parent and every adult who complains about Frozen now forgets that they lived so through The Little Mermaid it's era true. where they were pumping out as much, if not more, than this. Oh, it's true. I We must have played Under the Sea, from made my parents play that song in, the, in car rides who knows how many times. We wore that cassette. <laughs> Out. They had so they had Jody Benson do all kinds of other albums. There was a mm-hmm. Christmas album, I think. There were like just songs by Sebastian. It was it was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> they milked that for all it was worth. So. True. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I go back to Aladdin as well. Like that, that's a huge one for me. That I think, you know, I'm not super excited about the era we live in now. That we're getting a live action Aladdin. That they have nothing to give us, and, uh, and they're just literally taking their greatest films and turning them into live action. Um, I'm cautiously hopeful because Beauty and the Beast turned out really beautifully. I still prefer the old Beauty and the Beast, but my wife has said on more than one occasion, I think I like this new one better. Oh, really? No. I, I could not. Sorry, Emma Watson, and sorry, guy who played the Beast, who's on. <laughs> I, who, I, I, I mean, I guess he's on Downton Abbey or something, I think, was what I he was on. But yeah, well, he I'm left just... to play the Beast, so oh, even more that. reason to be upset about it. <laughs> ah, well. <sighs> But I feel like, again, live action, they really were kicking in high gear in the 90s as well, because you had great franchises, the Mighty Ducks. Again, go back, check out our Mighty Ducks uh, 4 pitches. And, you know, even ones that maybe we don't look back on as fondly now, but like, just because of where they've gone, but like the Santa Claus, you know, was a very big franchise. You had weird ones, you know, like Operation Dumbo Drop. I remember that. It's like Danny oh, Glover. Yeah. Still a big like, deal, though. Yeah, I guess Still a so. big deal. I enjoyed yeah. Rocket Man. I thought I was thought that was kind of funny. Harlan Williams is pretty hilarious in Rocket Man. <laughs> but if you go down, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, like going down the list of just like so many, yeah, live action. I mean, they did White Fang, then The Rocketeer, then Newsies, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Mighty Ducks, Muppet Christmas Carol, Homeward Bound, uh, Adventures of Huck Finn, Hocus Pocus, Cool Runnings, Three Months. Well, now we're getting into the nineties. That's only 93. Yeah. <laughs> Two running, three Musketeers, well, Iron Will. Blah. Then Mighty Ducks 2, White Fang 2, Angels in the Outfield, Santa Claus. Yeah, they owned the 90s, man. They really did. And I mean, I do feel like at a certain point, though, it started to taper off. And that's where, you know, because for me, like... Operation Dumbo Drop, as a matter of fact. The <laughs> that's exact the point that's is Operation Dumbo Drop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like something like... 
Tarzan for me in terms of like animated features. That was where I started to say like I went and saw that in theaters just because it was digital projection for the first time. But I really didn't care to see the movie itself. But it seemed like it was right in that period where the Pixar collaborations were saving them. Maybe, you know, some people enjoy Hercules, I know. They like their James Woods as Hades and whatever else, little Danny DeVito mixed in. But it just felt like, okay, maybe we're not quite as strong. And then all of a sudden you get Toy Story. And you got Toy Story 2. You got A Bug's Life, which maybe was not as successful, but still pretty impressive for its time. Better than Ants, you know? <laughs> well, but that's also the thing, too, is that... I mean, at the time, Pixar wasn't Disney. Disney was right. distributing it, but Pixar was a separate company. Mm-hmm. And and then, like, it was, again, going back to the Don Bluth thing, is that it was kind of like, and that's always been my thought, is that, man, Pixar gets Disney better than Disney gets Disney. You especially look through the early 2000s when you start getting, like, Home on the Range and Valiant and Chicken Little, and it's like, oh, Meet the Robinsons. I love Meet the Robinsons. I will defend that. I will die on that hill. (laughs) (laughs) But to put it up against, like, I mean, even if it's enjoyable, I don't, is it as brilliant as what Pixar was putting out in 2007? No, absolutely not. I know that. And that's the challenge. And you have Meet the Robinsons, and then three months later, you had Ratatouille. I'm losing that fight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing, too, that like and it's interesting that that I don't know if it will come up in our other podcast, uh, but that's one of the things seen at Disney uh, at Disneyland is that they Disney had set the bar so high with the Fantasmic show. And it's like it's spectacular. But back in those days, everything they did was like that. And then at some point, that was just the best thing that they had. And they had to just keep remaking the same thing. And it's like, yeah, when you set the bar that high, it makes it tough to to keep that going, I'm sure. Well, and I think there was a major faux pas by Disney in that early 2000s era. Because I remember, like, again, they were putting out Emperor's New Groove, which is a very fun film, you know, Atlantis and all these other ones that started to not do so well. But to me, what they failed to understand is we're always going to want that 2D hand-drawn animation. That's the core of who you are. And I remember them coming out just before Chicken Little, I think, and saying, we are done with 2D animation. You will only ever see computer animation from Walt Disney Pictures. And I was just like, what? Do you guys remember that announcement? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't remember the announcement, oh. but seeing that first trailer on Chicken Little and realizing this is a Disney movie, but it's not a Pixar movie, that flipped the switch. We're just like, oh, they, yeah. they're, they're doing this now. And they were almost competing with Pixar, which was so strange because they were distributing for Pixar. Yeah. And then there's that whole, you know, eventually they're buying them out and all those things. But th- yeah, that was a, a strange period. And I just felt like, you know, because then it was a huge deal when the Frog Princess came out, right? Because you're like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, like they're finally doing it again. I can't believe it. You know, it's like, why did you shoot yourself in the foot to begin with? Because it seemed like everything they put out just wasn't what people wanted unless it had Pixar's name on it. And then that was the one people trusted. But even in the 2000s, again, they were doing some pretty nice work with their live action of course you had the pirates franchise so pirates of the caribbean huge 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 and even national treasure i felt like was a very cool film for that period and i think again we forget almost that that was disney you know it's just kind of like oh a nicholas cage before he became that nicholas cage that was like his last good thing yeah (laughs) 
But for you guys, when you look at, you know, leading up to today for that 2000s period, is there a particular film that you feel like, you know what, grab on to this? For me, I am a huge fan of Treasure Planet. Because one, I love the story of Treasure Island. uh, And two, Treasure Planet, from what I've heard, was Roy Disney's baby. He had been wanting to make that movie for years, and he finally released it. It went over budget, and it basically was the casualty of the war between him and Michael Eisner. And the, the day after it was released, Michael Eisner declared it a flop and said, this is the reason that Disney is struggling, and Roy promptly quit like the next day. So all that to say, that kind of adds some flavor to the story itself. But for me, I think it's a beautifully made movie, at least for me, because there have been so many crappy Treasure Island versions, if you ask me. But it really captures the relationship between Jim and Long John Silver, which I love. That is a very good, very underrated one. Mike, how about for you? I'm going to stick by Meet the Robinsons, man. They're kind of hitting home with that keep moving forward line from Walt himself, and they kind of put it at the very end there. You also have The Princess and the Frog, which I think is really strong, and it's a shame that it was a one-and-done back-to-2D animation, because that is a solid, classic Disney movie, and I forget sometimes that it's as recent as 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually one I have not seen yet. I've always heard about it, you know, and I, I was excited when I, it was announced, but I just never got a chance to check it out. So one of these days, I'm going to have to take it all in, go down to the bayou or whatever there. <laughs> it was magical, and I mean, it was successful, but I wish it was a little more successful. If made a few years later, they would put that out today. I think it would be overwhelmingly successful. Interesting. I think the Emperor's New Groove was a huge, big, especially like huge, big, I think is the thing that I say, but it was a big (laughs) thing that really breathed a lot of life into Disney. And especially since then has really become a cult classic, especially around 30 somethings. I know a lot of my peers that that's their favorite Disney movie because it's really like any other Disney movie, if you ask me. It has a very Warner Brothers sort of like Bugs Bunny feel to it. Which I think is is that interesting, yeah, kind of breath of fresh air, I thought. Yeah, and actually, Jeff, that's perfect, because that was going to be my pick. Because for me, Emperor's New Groove, just the characters in there, the performers, I mean, you get John Goodman in there, you know, you get a little David Spade, you know, and it is, especially when you got Patrick Warburton as Kronk, you know, like, just all of those characters all work in the story, as wacky as it is, like, each one of them does have a journey, each one of them does have, okay, I guess Kronk does it so much have a journey other than to kind of turn to a good guy he gets his own show though yeah he gets his own spinoff film yeah becomes buzz lightyear somehow yeah (laughs) but yeah i I feel like to me that was just one of the most unique films they put out in a long while and even like when i look down now if i go to something like wreck it ralph which i also love i don't think yeah it just doesn't have the energy the emperor's new groove gives you there's so few films that do well i want to throw in really quick because i was reading there's a list on imdb of all of the animated movies and apparently this guy did not like Emperor's New Groove. He said, Disney completely threw out what they said before the 90s when the film would be less about humor. This is more like a very cocky and less likable Aladdin. People didn't like this path they went. So when people thought this, they thought, they thought this is what Gis- Disney is now, a joke. And it led to Disney's future project to fail. Oh, come on now. <laughs> oh, he was 
not pleased. And I'm going to plant a seed here one more time, a little tease, because I, I did get to play Kronk at California Adventure, so that may be part of my bias. <laughs> and I, I had a celebrity encounter as Kronk oh. that people will not believe. So stay tuned for our California Adventure episode of the Two Goofs podcast, because there's going to be something special there you won't want to miss teaser well done yeah that, that's a big one all right well there, i mean there's so much history literally i mean we've been talking for this long we could talk for many you know full podcasts dedicated to these things but let's let's get into our pitches here because that's the thing right there was a period in disney's history and it was kind of early 2000s where they hit the sequel button hard oh, like yeah. they took a lot of their classics and they were just bringing them back around i mean they made like two more cinderella sequels and, and and two more little mermaids and just everything like they just kept doing it over and over again so i'm curious to find out where we fall in terms of our live action ideas for a sequel and our ideas for animated sequels and are they ones that have already been done that need to be done better or is it ones that maybe have fallen by the wayside and need a little attention so mike why don't you start us off with your live action pitch you already did the live-action Disney movie I really, really want to see a sequel to, and that's The Rocketeer. So go back and listen to that, everybody. I'm a bit bummed a wrinkle in time last year didn't do well, because I would have loved uh, Swiftly Tilting Planet. I, that was one of my favorite books growing up. But my thoughts turned to rebooting when I was thinking of this one. And I know this one was announced a while ago, but it spent the better part of this decade in limbo, perhaps appropriately, because I'm talking about The Haunted Mansion. Ah, Pirates picked up that ball and ran with it and were on five movies now, and most of them are pretty good. But that one Haunted Mansion movie was just a stinker. <laughs> it's true. And I went into that with high hopes after Pirates, and then it's Eddie Murphy, and then should be fine, right? But not realizing that it's awkward dad version of Eddie Murphy who's following up the adventures of Pluto Nash. You know, there were rumblings eight or nine years ago that Guillermo del Toro was attached to a reboot of The Haunted Mansion, and then we heard nothing since that. That's because so. he was attached to, like, 50 projects at once, yeah. and none of them <laughs> happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I've come up with a very quick and dirty pitch in hopes of nudging things along. All right. And, and this version of The Haunted Mansion story focuses on a young woman who I'm calling Melanie in this very rough draft of the story, and I'm borrowing that name from the Paris version of the ride, uh, Phantom Manor, but it's just a name I'm borrowing. So Melanie, engaged to be married, finds what she believes to be the perfect dress in the back of an old antique shop. Despite the shop's owner not knowing where the dress came from or how old it is, uh, and it's shortly after acquiring this alluring dress that Melanie somehow ends up booking online, of course, the historic Gracie Manor as her honeymoon suite location to surprise her fiancé, George Hightower, a young hotelier and amateur historian. Having seen neither the dress nor the wedding night destination, George, in his research, stumbles upon the story of Constance Hatchaway, the so-called Black Widow Bride, who married wealthy man after wealthy man, only for each to be found decapitated shortly after his wedding night. And according to legend, Constance claimed each of her short-lived husband's inheritances before ultimately disappearing. So when George and Melanie's wedding day arrives, he notices something familiar about the altered dress, but can't quite put his finger on it right away. And after their nuptials and joyous reception, a friendly but jumpy driver 
and his trusty, though equally nerve-wracked hound dog arrived to whisk the couple away to Gracie Manor, notably more foreboding-looking as the sun sets, giving way to a dark and stormy wedding night. But it's inside that the couple gets separated shortly after arriving, and we spend most of the rest of the movie kind of following Melanie and George in turn as they find their way around the dark and seemingly endless halls of this haunted mansion, running into some disturbing scenes as well as some recognizable faces among the mansion's famous 999 happy haunts, including the mysterious but not unhelpful Madame Leota, whose ghostly head encased in her crystal ball aids each guest in turn by calling on the spirits wherever they're at to point them in the right direction. Uh, and as each of the newlyweds dodges and runs from a host of silly spooks, they learn separately that Melanie's dress was once Constance Hatch Hatchaway and is slowly possessing Melanie as she continues wearing it. Meanwhile, George finds his way first into the famous stretching room in which he sees an old woman sitting atop a grave adorned by a bust of his own head split with a hatchet and later into the attic where George discovers the heads of Constance Hatchaway's late husbands, each kept neatly preserved in a set of hat boxes, which brings <laughs> in a short cameo by the infamous hat box ghost who chases him out onto the balcony and eventually down into the outside rear of the premises. Convinced he just married Constance herself, or perhaps a ghostly form of her, George attempts to leave the mansion when he encounters the nervous caretaker again and his dog, who are suddenly scared speechless by the sight of a hatchet-wielding Melanie. And both she and George shriek at the sight of each other, and they take off on different paths, running through the lively graveyard full of grim, grinning ghosts. Until George realizes that Melanie was running away from him, too, and piecing together clues from the attic, he figures out it's the dress that's influencing his bride somehow. And as he circles back, he finds Melanie sort of battling with herself as Constance tries to fully possess her. And George realizes tearing the haunted wedding dress some more and ultimately freeing his bride from it. And Melanie burns her own wedding dress, ridding it and the mansion of the evil spirit of the Black Widow Bride to the cheering approval of the other happy haunts. And I have us ending at dawn with some quick, friendly banter from the caretaker as our couple rides off to begin their own ghost-free life together elsewhere. Or so they think, as the last shot reveals three familiar hitchhiking ghosts along for the ride <laughs> on the car's back bumper. Yes. A bit sloppy with some holes in it, but given another shot, I'd love to see a new Haunted Mansion movie. Absolutely. That one sounds very entertaining and it hits every beat you want from the ride that you want to see. And of course, yeah, then the sequels, right? From there, if it's popular, then you just go to the French mansion, right? Yeah, you... you can go to there. There's one in Hong Kong called Mystic Manor, where if you look at a picture of that, it looks phenomenal. Yeah, that's a good uh, franchise to kickstart. I love it. All right, I'm going to jump in here then. My live action pitch, I remember catching a movie starring Alan Thicke on ABC on some Sunday in 1987, 
and loving the concept of the dad from Growing Pains becoming a scientist who built an android. <laughs> so, in my young robot mind, the robot boy Chip was actually played by Kirk Cameron and the daughter was Tracy Gold from Growing Pains, which was not the case. Could just be your, yeah. I was five. I couldn't quite understand. It was actually Jay Underwood who played Johnny Storm in the unreleased Roger Corbin Fantastic Four movie. That was Chip. And the boy who could fly. The boy who could fly. Yeah. And uh, Robin Lively from Teen Witch was the daughter. But so this movie was actually based on a series of novels and had two sequels in 89 and 92. Not Quite Human 2 and still Not Quite Human. So I am presenting the fourth installment in the franchise as a soft reboot for Not Quite Human. It's going to act as a pilot, actually, for an ongoing TV uh, series on ABC. Now, one conceit that has to be taken into account is my pitch requires the acquisition of a non-Disney syndicated 80s TV series by Buena Vista Television. So just as Disney bought the original Kids Incorporated after it had a brief run in syndication, turned it into one of the longest running shows on the Disney Channel, this would be like a retooling of sorts premiering on the TG GIF programming block in 1994. I present to you Circuits of Love. So, <laughs> <laughs> Becky, the daughter of Dr. Jonas Carson, played by Alan Thick, has gotten engaged while at college and is getting married to a young man named Jamie. During the week before the wedding, Jonas and his android son Chip go on a trip to meet the future in laws. It's here that Jonas comes face to face with Jamie's father. Ted Lawson, who is also a robotics engineer, having secretly built Jamie's android sister, Vicky, who has lived as a normal child with the family for years. Chip and Vicky, now college age, having received upgrades, have a humorous introduction where they each describe the other as weird, pointing out their various flaws within human levels of accuracy, which starts to raise suspicions. Over dinner, Dr. Carson reveals that he's accepted a position in town as chief engineer for a company called United Robotronics, a promotion for which Ted was passed over, which leads to friction between the two dads and finds them trying to one-up each other with their knowledge of robotics, leading to the prideful men revealing their accomplishments in designing and creating synthetic humans. This leads to a scene where Chip and Vicky compete in various feats of strength and their ability to appear human. With the urging of family members, however, the two men ultimately put aside their differences and form a nerdy brotherhood and agree to keep their accomplishments a secret while attempting to push Vicky and Chip into a romantic relationship in the name of science. At work, the single Dr. Carson strikes up a romance of his own with an ambitious programmer named Catherine, played by Stephanie Powers from Heart to Heart, who, after overhearing a conversation between Lawson and Carson, wants in on helping them write the programming that would more accurately simulate the unpredictable nature of human love. Much like the Small Wonder TV series, Circuits of Love would revolve around trying to keep the origins of these robot children a secret, while reflecting the love lives of the two couples through experiments with the android would-be lovers. And, and so the show would feature episode premises like the androids sign up for a dating service and Vicky falls for the computer dating AI machine and makes Chip jealous. Or uh, Vicky gets a makeover from Catherine and Joni to see how it increases Chip's interest in her. And of course, because it's TGIF, there would be a crossover episode where Vicky starts dating Steve Urkel's robot double, Urkelbot. <laughs> 
but basically this is just a, a premise where the the whole idea is is that you're gonna see these robots trying to go through the ups and downs of love you know in, in humorous ways just as you would expect from all the classics of the tgif lineup so there you have it circuits of love bravo way to pull in <laughs> small wonder out of nowhere <laughs> Okay, Jeff, what do you got for us? All right. So as I mentioned before, one of my favorites, not only because of history, but also just because of the story itself, is Treasure Island. So I would like to do a sequel, a legit sequel to Treasure Island. Somebody wrote Return to Treasure Island, but I don't know what the story was that one. So I tried to come up with a new one, believe it or not. So anyway, this would take place two years after the original story of Treasure Island. Jim Hawkins has returned home to rebuild the Benbow and help his mom to run it. One night, in stumbles a very familiar-looking man with a peg leg named Long John Silver, who is wounded, but he asks Jim not to call the authorities. So Jim and his mom never had a name before, so I'm going to call her Abby. Uh, they decide to patch him up anyway because of their connection from before. And so he reveals that he's being hunted by Black Dog, which was one of the bad guy pirates that survived the first story, because he's one of the people that still knows where Treasure Island is. And Black Dog doesn't want anyone else to have that information. So he begs Jim to uh, that they need to go back to Treasure Island to take all the treasure away so that that way it doesn't matter if anybody knows about it or not. But Jim has other things he's running to end, so he's not interested at all. He ends up encountering at various points in his life, first Ben Gunn and then Abraham Gray, who were both on the island as well. And both of them, their lives did not go very well. Their, the treasure didn't end up helping them live successful lives. Though Abraham does have a ship, he can't afford a crew. Ben ended up spending it all on frivolities, and so now he's back homeless and begging again. So with all of that weighing on him, Jim finally agrees, especially because then Black Dog shows up and threatens and uh, you know attacks them. So they all flee, including his mom comes along this time. However, that does mean that on Abraham's ship, there's only five of them between Long John Silver, Ben, Abraham, and Jim and his mom. So that there's not enough, like, it's it's definitely, they can do it, but it is very, very difficult to run an entire ship with only five of them. Plus, it adds to the fact that all of them remember that Long John Silver betrayed them and was the leader of the pirates and the mutiny and stuff like that. So nobody really trusts him. Uh, and even Jim kind of always looks at him sideways a little bit. Anyway, the, so we kind of go through some, maybe not adventures, but just that conflict as they're traveling. Meanwhile, Black Dog's ship ends up catching up to them. And they get into a battle on the ocean, and Abraham's ship is destroyed, and everyone ends up in the water, wherein uh, Long John Silver rescues all of them in an escape craft. But that actually leads everyone to be more suspicious because they said, why were you in an escape craft in the middle of a battle? And now they get into an even bigger fight because they think that he was trying to run again. But through all of that, the, the kind of interruption of the argument is Land Ho. They actually have reached Treasure Island. So they get to Treasure Island. However, Black Dog has beaten them there. So they're kind of on one side of the island and the pirates on the other. So they're kind of sneaking around but they rely on ben's knowledge of the island to try and outwit the pirates uh they do discover the three pirates that were left behind dick johnson tom morgan and the pirate with no name were all left behind so they do find them and they kind of get them onto their side and ultimately like yeah just kind of the various things that would go on like in the original movie or the other movies 
on the island of kind of the back and forth and the we know where you are, send this guy out and blah, blah, blah. But it ends up coming down to a conflict where uh, Long John Silver, it's a situation where he has to uh, sacrifice himself. So he dies but saves everybody else. So he does finally have that moment of redemption to, that he is truly the hero that we wanted him to be. And he'll have like a very heartfelt goodbye with Jim as he's dying they do end up getting the treasure, and this time they don't leave any pirates behind. They take the pirate's ship uh, and the pirate's prisoner and head back home again. Well done. Yeah, just like all the all the diehard Treasure Island fans are very excited. My wife in particular loves Muppet Treasure Island, so I'll get her take on this and find out what she thinks. So, we've certainly hit up a wide swath of Disney live action, for sure. I think I don't think anybody probably would have picked any of the movies we picked <laughs> to, to create sequels to, so that's quite exciting. Now, the question is, when you get to animated, where do you take it? How obscure are we going to get? Or are we grabbing some of the classics we want to see more of? So, Mike, what do you have in our animated realm? You know, the tough part about this one was that Disney's already cranked out so many animated sequels. <laughs> yes. Shout so out true. to Cinderella 3, which is oh. basically the last half of Back to the Future 2. But That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> it's got a, a heavy it's time travel element. So. Alternate 1985 Cinderella. I immediately started flipping through some of the really deep cuts. Like I said, my favorite Disney movie as a kid was The Sword in the Stone. Uh, however, I ultimately landed on another deep cut from our childhood, The Great Mouse Detective. Oh. I think it left a bigger impression on me because I saw that one in the drive-in, so it was actually much bigger. Mm -hmm. But So The Great Mouse Detective is based on a series called Basil of Baker Street, and the second book... I have not read, but it sounds super fun. It's called Basil and the Lost Colony. Uh, this pitch is a lot shorter, but from what I can gather, Basil leads a group of mice through Switzerland in search of a fabled colony of mice that lived in William Tell's basement 600 years before this story takes place called the <laughs> Tell Mice. So... All while his nemesis, Radigan, who somehow survived his first adventure, is hot on his tail up this cold mountain in Switzerland. So, A museum scholar shows Basil an arrow with strange markings that he's uncovered that is somehow linked to these tail mice. And also accompanying Basil on his expedition in Switzerland is an opera-singing mouse called Relda, which if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, that is the surname of Irene Adler backwards. And along the way, they apparently run into the adorable snow mouse. Not a typo, I'm reading. <laughs> so that's a cute possibility for a character. Think smaller Olaf with mouse ears. There you go. And that is all I know about Basil and the Lost Colony, other than, spoiler alert, they find the colony. But it sounds super fun. You've got a built-in musical number with an opera singer, another one with an adorable snow mouse. Radigan would surely have one of his own. Sadly, Vincent Price is currently very unavailable. But, <laughs> uh, and a bunch of mice climbing a mountain on a quest to find a whole bunch of lost mice's descendants. Give me this movie. Yeah, well, it sounds like the great selling point for this is that you get benedict cumberbatch and martin freeman to come back and reprise their roles somehow there it you know, is from their great turns as sherlock and watson and there you go you sell it to a new audience they'll be on board 
All right. So again, like you said, Mike, I mean, it's interesting because really, I mean, when they made a sequel to Peter Pan, even Fantasia got a sequel, which is just like... (laughs) I don't know about this. So so I was really racking my brain as well. And I was surprised, aside from Bambi, because... Or was there a Bambi sequel that I'm forgetting? I feel like they planned one, but... Oh, was there a Bambi 2? Oh, that's right. But there was. Wow. I think it was more like a Bambi one and a half, because I feel like it was... (laughs) Time with my dad. Yeah. But they never went back to the Pinocchio well. At any point, which was surprising to me. Like, I know Jiminy Cricket would show up in different things, but really Pinocchio has kind of been left alone. So that was a major film for me as a kid. And then I actually dressed up as Pinocchio for Halloween when I was seven. I wore the costume for several like Cub Scout and family reunion plays and stuff. So I got a lot of mileage out of playing Pinocchio. I had my big rubber nose and everything. So I said, what do you do with Pinocchio? Because he's a real boy. He's gotten what he wanted. So what is the next step for him? That is why I give you Pinocchio 2, Pirates of Pleasure Island. (laughs) (laughs) So, picking up five years after the events of the first film, Pinocchio is living a happy life as a real boy who's on the cusp of becoming a teenager. Jiminy has stuck around, though not as Pinocchio's conscious, but a friendly Mr. Miyagi type figure who's most recently been helping Pinocchio with his attempted romantic adventures. Pinocchio's got a crush on a local girl in the village named Greta, who he's trying to impress with secret gifts of little music boxes that he creates under the tutelage of his father Geppetto. Each music box leaves a clue that Greta eventually follows to the shoreline where Pinocchio is waiting to sing her song on his accordion with Figaro in tow. After a little moment of young romance in this foggy night, a backlit ship barely lit by the moonlight can be seen approaching the mainland on the waves when suddenly a bottle comes crashing down on the sand, setting the ground ablaze with fire. Telling Figaro to get Greta to safety, Pinocchio looks to see a ship filled with wild donkey pirates braying and laughing (laughs) on the deck. Wow. When the ship runs ashore, Pinocchio climbs aboard to confront the crew and meets their captain, Alexander, who reveals that they have already laid waste to Pleasure Island and need a new place where they can be taken care of, hoping to return to live with their families. But Alexander's parents reject him, not so much because he's a hideous donkey-human hybrid, but (laughs) he's become a rude and arrogant jerk. This causes the captain, Alexander, to go into a rage and turn on his home. The pirates wreak havoc on the village, so Pinocchio must combat the pirates with the help of Greta's father, the burgermeister of the village. But even though they drive the donkey pirates away, Alexander has eyes for Greta and kidnaps her, vowing that this won't be the end of the war. We then learn that the villagers have not been kind to Stromboli and his gypsy brethren over the years, so the donkey pirates approach the outcast with an offer to join forces and take their traveling show to the world. Stromboli agrees, but really plans to turn the donkey pirates into his new attraction, raising a mutiny once they get up on the high seas. With many of the townsfolk injured in the first battle with the pirates, Pinocchio gets the idea to animate an army of puppets as soldiers to defend the village. So he and Jiminy take off on a quest to summon the Blue Fairy. They are told a sacrifice of the heart will have to be made, and Pinocchio agrees to become a puppet again to help his village. So the Blue Fairy transports them back to Geppetto's workshop, where they bring these puppets to life, a la bedknobs and broomsticks, as well as an arsenal of clockwork steampunk weapons created by Geppetto. 
Geppetto, and they comically do battle with the pirates and gypsies, as at the end of Beauty and the Beast, you know, that kind of fight. <laughs> and at the end, of course, Greta's rescued, Stromboli turns on Alexander, trying to abscond with several of the donkey pirates in their ship, leading to another comical battle out on the sea, kind of like Captain Hook being chased by the croc. And... All the while, Pinocchio and Greta are sharing their love, and Pinocchio sings another song to her as credits roll. Donkey Pirates. <laughs> Donkey Pirates. Unexpected. Wow. <laughs> well, if you listen back to Congo, Gorilla Wives, you know, Donkey Pirates. <laughs> we, this is yeah. a crazy world we live in. Surprise It's a crazy world by... you live in, Adam. <laughs> the rest of us are not living in that world. <laughs> what a surprise heel turn by little Alexander. Yes. As soon as you said that name, I could hear his voice in my head, Alexander. Oh, one of the most frightening and sad moments of the film. Yes, that was traumatizing for him as well as the rest of us, apparently. I feel like that's why I've I've held off so far in showing the kids Pinocchio. Yeah, Pleasure Island is a a crazy segment. All right, Jeff, what do you got? I decided to give Ratatouille a whirl because for me, I kind of feel like it's one of the forgotten Pixar movies, at least forgotten by me. So uh, giving it a sequel might help with that. We left off with the last movie, La Ratatouille, has been established with Ego as their sponsor or their patron. And it's flourishing. It's doing very well. However, Linguini is starting to get cocky, feeling like all the training that he went through that he doesn't actually need mice he can do it on his own uh, or at least that he should be able to to cook more things without remy's help and so he he's been trying to kind of convince ego to sponsor him and maybe start a a separate restaurant or something along those lines so in the midst of of that kind of backdrop kind of going on a celebrity chef shows up i kind of picture like some form of a gordon ramsay uh, and challenges La Ratatouille to a duel that he's saying that their food can't possibly be all that good in, in a very Gordon Ramsay style. So in a shocking turn of, of events, he decides to cook Remy's signature dish of Ratatouille. Uh, and then when the judge tries it, it, it makes Remy's look like an embarrassment. And Remy is, is humiliated. So in shame, he essentially lets Linguini take over the restaurant. So it's still surviving, but it doesn't nearly have as much energy as it did when Remy and, and his friends were helping out. So in depression, I guess, he's just kind of roaming the streets of Paris when he sees or he kind of gets through the grapevine or however it would hear he ends up finding whatever the celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay's going to actually be called his restaurant. And in so doing, he kind of like is, is going where rats would go around in the back and the whatever. And here's kind of some suspicious noises coming from the kitchen. And he goes into this kitchen to discover that not only are there not humans back there, there's not even rats back there. There are birds back there that are actually <laughs> cooking the food. They're, they're doing great. They're cooking amazing food because apparently birds are spectacular chefs. But they're basically like prisoners. They're being forced to cook and and that not only are they getting no credit for it they also don't have any freedom and then that you know of course they that in the midst of that is when the gordon ramsay guy shows up and then he captures remy and an evil laugh and like leave blah 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 blah. so then the, the the next part of the movie turns into kind of like a great escape prison break sort of a movie as they're trying to scheme how do we break all of these birds out of this restaurant 
And so he ends up having to get messages back to his whatever the little fat friend's name was. So it gets him back to him and then do the whole prison break sort of a thing. Uh, get back to Linguini. They make up and they say, okay, you need to re-challenge Gordon Ramsay to a duel. Uh, so they re-challenge it, but now without his army of birds behind him, now the birds are actually cooking for La Ratatouille. And so then they clobber him and um, make a far better food because it turns out Gordon Ramsay, or at least this Gordon Ramsay, doesn't actually know how to cook. He was completely faking it and riding entirely off the coattails of the birds. And so that he leaves in humiliation as the credits roll. Wow. I'm starting to think that we've been robbed of many delicious dishes by health inspectors. It's true. We just need to get animals in there cooking. We need to get animals to cook for us <laughs> under their own desires, you know. We can't I'm giving force- my dog free range around the kitchen tomorrow night. See what she comes up with. All right. Well, this was fun, guys. Mike, we thank you so much for joining us and being a part of this discussion, which went all sorts of different directions. But why don't you tell the folks where they can find you on the Internet? Sure. I am at Fall West Mike on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And as mentioned before, I have a podcast called The Advent Calendar House, where we talk about TV holiday specials, mostly Christmas and mostly during December. But uh, we just had a new episode a few weeks ago and hopefully coming up soon in April. And that is all at adventcalendar.house. Wonderful. Thank you. And as mentioned, you know, this little cross promotion with Jeff and I on the Two Goofs podcast. So be sure to go ahead and check that out. You know, we're everywhere you want to be with podcasts. And we're interested very much in continuing our association with the Disney community online. So be sure to tell your friends, share the show and and spread the word, because uh, I think there's a lot of interesting ideas out there. And if you have Disney sequel ideas, throw those our way, too. We'll we'll retweet tweet we'll post we'll share them because uh, there's a lot of creative folks out there so until next time (laughs) keep moving forward (laughs) there we go we hope you enjoyed this episode of sequel quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was share your ideas with the sequel quest universe by visiting sequelquestpod.com following us on twitter at sqpod on facebook by searching sequel Quest or sending an email to sequelquestpod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 